Hello, and welcome to episode 90 of the Cognicast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people who create it. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Well, as always, we have a few things we'd like to mention to you at the beginning of the show, make you aware of them. Uh, and the first uh, things I'd like to mention are the upcoming Closure Bridge events. There are three coming up in Philadelphia, New York City, and in Minnesota. Um, so these are all in November 2015. Uh, Philly and Minnesota ones are November 13th and 14th. That happens to be the weekend right before the conge. The conge is in Philadelphia, so the Closure Ridge Philadelphia one might be convenient for you if you are attending the conge, um, which of course we hope you are. The New York City one is November 20th and 21st. Um, so it's a different weekend, uh, different dates, but, um, you know, uh, it's in New York. So if you happen to be there and that one's convenient for you, then great. And so, of course, there are a bunch of ways that you can um, uh, participate in Closure Bridge. One, of course, is as an attendee. Uh, we've talked about Closure Bridge before. You know that it's an organization aimed at uh, increasing diversity in the closure community by offering these free workshops uh, to women. So this is, the organization is aimed primarily at women. You can read more about that on the website, closurebridge.org. Um, but if you're not a beginner to closure, if you're not a, a woman, there are still lots of ways that you can participate in Closure Bridge. Um, again, you can read more about that on their website, closurebridge.org. But a couple of, of them are, um, of course, well, the primary one, of course, is you can ask how you can help, right? So I know the uh, NYC uh, Closure Bridge reached out to us and said, hey, we're, you know, we would be especially interested in hearing from people who could help out, maybe as instructors or as, um, or as you know, assistants or whatever. So um, if you're anywhere near any of those places, Philly or New York City or um, uh, the one in Minnesota, uh, which I believe is in Minneapolis, uh, you know, reach out to those organizations and say, hey, I'd like to help, or if you'd like to attend, that's, even, that's great too. Um, or if you know someone who might benefit from attending, that's also great. I'd encourage you to make that connection. So uh, Closure Bridge. Um, the other thing I want to mention today before the show is Closure Conj itself. You know, here we are. It's, uh, as I'm recording this, sort of the beginning of November 2015. Uh, Closure Conj itself is middle of November 2015, and uh, it's coming up. And there's still tickets available now, but we do always see a big surge of ticket purchases sort of as the conference gets closer and, uh, you know, it, it can sell out. <laughs> so if you are one of the people that waits until the last minute, well, don't be the person that waits until the minute after the last ticket sells out. So head over to closure-conch.org and, and pick up your tickets because we would love to see you there. And if you have already gotten your tickets, kudos. Um, I will mention uh, the thing that is always true, which is that if you're at the conference and you see me or can track me down, I would love to hear from you. It's always super fun to talk to listeners, um, you know, just and just people in the closure community in general. So uh, seek me out. I'd be great. I'd love to say hi. Um, I have uh, closure... Uh, uh, stickers I have, uh, Cognitech stickers I have, I have uh, Cognicast stickers, so hit me up for one of those and I'll, I'll dig you one out. Um, but, you know, even if you don't want a sticker, um, I'd still like to talk to you. So, And that goes true for anybody, that uh, anyone from Cognitech that's there, we would love to talk to you. So, um, anyway, we do hope to see you there. Um, I think that's it for today as far as announcements go, so we will go ahead and go on to episode 90 of the Cognicast.
are ready, yes? Yes. I am ready, so let's kick it off. All right, welcome everybody to the Cognicast. Today is Tuesday, October 6th in the year 2015. And I am really just super psyched about today's guest because this person has been a friend of mine for, I think, more than 25 years. I'd have to go back and actually do the math, but for a really long time and, and throughout that time, a really close friend of mine. Uh, he's an interactive storyteller, I think is one way he would describe himself. Um, a software developer, an artist, um, author of a comic strip that I really like, an online comic strip. You know, he's written games. Um, just a really interesting guy. So this is my, my very uh, good and close personal friend, uh, Mr. Rob Stenzinger. Welcome to the show, Rob. Ah, thanks, Craig. <laughs> uh, thank you for inviting me here. That's, uh, it, it's always hard to, uh, to come up with a summary bio, right? It's the, it's the nutshell of, you know, market yourself right here and now. And yeah, thanks for <laughs> thanks for listing all that. Yeah, well, I mean, like I said, I've known you for a long time, and you know, you and I have had uh, many, many conversations of the type I suspect we're about to have, and they've always been interesting. And many a time, you and I have said, you know, oh, hey, it's a shame that we didn't record that. But anyway, so uh, but before we go on to some of that stuff, um, we need to start with the. Uh, a tradition that I only minutes ago warned you about, <laughs> which is where um, we ask our guests at the beginning of the show, share with us some experience of, of that somehow relates to art, and that could be anything really. I mean, a, a, a movie they liked or a, a sculpture they've done in some cases or just a story that you want to tell because uh, I think storytelling is a fascinating art in of its own right, but it's really up to you. Um, and I know I didn't give you very much time to think of something ahead of time, but uh, but um, I, I'm sure you have something you want to lay on us. So uh, what would you like to share here at the beginning of the show? Well, let's see where this story goes. I started a webcomic back in 2008, and it was actually really shortly after uh, a, a vacation that I, I went on with, with you and some friends. And I had a couple of characters rattling around in my head, and this was when... I was uh, just starting to go into uh, independent consulting as well. And there was, you know, you, I could focus on doing, you know, code samples and small projects and whatnot, but I also had this really bad urge to do some storytelling and had been consuming many webcomics at the time. And much is the case when you consume art and get, get uh, af affected by it, I think it can sort of, well, for me, I, I get the urge to just try it out. If I, uh, I hear someone pay, playing something compelling on guitar or drawing something that, that is particularly exciting or what have you, or well, <clears throat> if I'm playing a video game or any, I mean, anything that, that can just pull me in and arrest me, I, I get the urge to feel what it's like to make that. And at the time there was, uh, this whole web comics movement going on right around, uh, and that had been going on since the early 2000s. But I think there was kind of a critical mass where it was, it was in sort of this indie consciousness of, of uh, oh, yeah, sure, that's a pursuit. You, you might start a band. You might start a webcomic. These are, you know, normal common things, but not, not uh, necessarily pop culture yet. And it, it, it just seemed very compelling because, well, why what other what other approach to uh, creating your art could you get some some immediate feedback yet keep tuning and refining and then accumulate something over time that that is this one massive work and that that was just super appealing with webcomics 
so that's uh, that's something I started. I think in let's see, it's February of 2008, and that turned out to there's a lot of different you know hindsight bias and narrative bias being what they are. It's easy to sort of pull out any nugget and say, well, yeah, this is what that whole experience, that section of my life was about. Uh, but I really do think some of those uh, hold water. And by committing to putting out a webcomic, I found myself um, discovering more facets to that commitment. Uh, things like people reacting to it. Things like I really liked people reacting to it. <laughs> and that sort of created this feedback loop that was, uh, that was fun. You know, sometimes I, would, I was able to put that put out a comic multiple times a week, which was uh, and is called Art Geek Zoo. And it was one of those kinds of uh, side projects, if you will, that, that I think just really provided a, a lot of different educational benefits and experiences once I, once I started to sort of cross those worlds. And, and, uh, and it would so sometimes come up organically, such as right now. <laughs> are close enough in uh, yeah in the world of of making software and things. Yeah, and of course I'm a big fan of the comic myself. And in 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 point of fact, I'm sitting here at my desk and I have in front of me uh, some of your uh, merchandise <laughs> associated with the uh, the uh, comic strip. It's 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 cool stuff. People should definitely check out Art Geek Zoo. And and that's actually a really nice way to, I think to to start start to introduce you to our audience. Um, you know, you don't live in the world that I occupy, the closure world, I mean. Um, you're, you're elsewhere. And actually, that's one of the reasons I think it's so interesting to have you on because when you and I have talked, you know, we've always uh, come to either slightly different conclusions, sometimes radically different conclusions, sometimes the same conclusions coming at it from different perspectives. So I think that's really cool. Uh, but all of which is a roundabout way of saying, um, you know, let's take that further. Let's let's have you introduce yourselves to our to our audience. I introduced you a bunch of different ways. Maybe you can kind of uh, fill in the gaps there and and say, hey, my name's Rob. Here's here's what I do, or who I am, or however you want to introduce yourself. Well, what I do now is uh, I'm a, a bit of a UX designer, coder, and facilitator. And I apply that stuff on, on a team at, at uh, Target Corporate called uh, EGI, which, <laughs> like many large organizations, my opinions are my own, et cetera, uh, I've noticed, well, they, they tend to accumulate acronyms. And in this case, this one stands for Enterprise Growth Initiatives. And it's essentially a lot like an incubator, but it's, you know, it's it's incubator-esque within a large corporation. So they, they fund uh, this group of uh, folks called uh, entrepreneurs and residents. And I will assist them starting businesses and testing hypotheses that often related to uh, digital products, but not exclusively. So it could be that, uh, in the, anyway, that sounds maybe too dry. What it looks like up close is someone has a, an idea. Of well, I think providing glowing the dark uh, bean bags is super compelling, and I would like you know such and such funding to do this because especially it's in this market, et cetera, et cetera. So they've essentially formed like this this hypothesis, which may be based on a lot of assumptions. So what we do is we'll we'll go through some design 
uh, design thinking type exercises to sort of make sure we've unboxed all those different assumptions and then uh, find ways to explore a like a minimum viable or minimum lovable way to test those ideas and build from there and kind of hit it from a few different angles with uh, with other folks uh, who are excellent at like testing financial hypotheses and whatnot and and at at the end of those different uh, sort of creative crucibles and tests, sometimes things get funded and uh, move on to bigger, bigger stuff. So now how many of those types of ideas are you seeing in a typical month, week or whatever other, you know, year, whatever other convenient uh, time unit? Like what's the rate of ideas like that you'll be exposed to? Well, I mean, I suppose in a way it's, it's, um, it's more of a pet shop where I'm in a particular tank and I can, I can look outside my tank and see plenty of things going on. But uh, I don't know. Am I really exposed to those? Uh, uh, I mean, so, I mean, you've, you've consulted for quite some time. Sure. And have started businesses and whatnot. Uh, I mean, I think that people tend to f- get ideas that they get fired up about based on scratching their itch or based on seeing some viable place where someone else has an itch they want to go help scratch. And you just run into that a lot. So I couldn't even name a number. It's, hmm. You just, they're, they're everywhere. And especially if you tell people you work on this kind of team. <laughs> so that's interesting. So, I mean, do you think there's anything, so you're right, I have been doing consulting for a while. And I was actually struck when you were describing it about how similar what you're doing is to what I do. Of course, you're focused internally at Target. Um, mm-hmm. or That's an assumption on my part, I suppose, but... Um, I'm assuming that your your customers, if you will, are are also target employees, um, whereas mine are you know not right. I'm I'm working with people that are at other companies and paying our company to help them out. So uh, so what I was wondering, uh, you know, you said you run into it a lot. Do you think there's anything about um, you know, is, is there anything in the nature of a big company? It's something I've been thinking about a lot because I've done a lot of big company work over my career. I mean. Microsoft, Honeywell, um, you know, a bunch of places, including Target actually a long time ago, um, where there's definitely um, aspects of, of large company culture that's the same from, from place to place broadly, very, very broadly. Every, every company is quite different from another even at that scale. But do you think there's anything about working in a big company where, and I'm completely putting words in your mouth, this is not something I necessarily believe, but I want you to comment on it, where like... You know, because of the way things tend to go, people are especially looking for opportunities to do these sorts of entrepreneurial things. Hmm. So it, if I'm hearing you, maybe this is the, the – are you describing the dynamic how maybe people have uh, a particular area of focus and, and they want to sort of branch out beyond that, but yet uh, there's a tension that, that they want to – Navigate? So, somewhat, right? So that's definitely yeah. a factor. I think in big companies, um, it's a strength that, you know, um, when you get beyond a, per- a certain point, like you hear people say in startups, well, I'm at a startup or I'm a small company. And so, you know, I have to do everything because, you know, that's just how it works in those environments. And when you get to a big company, it is somebody's job to, you know, keep keep the phones, just the phones, like that's their whole job or whatever. Um, and oh, so sure. there, there is or a sort of... keep the phones on floors one through five. Right, Exactly. Floors- Six through ten is that someone else? That's job. someone else. I would never mess with that stuff. Yeah, yeah. So and that, and that specialization is a is a strength of large organizations when it's used properly. So there's that, but I think there's also um, 
um, a sense in which things at large companies can move slowly. I think that there are groups within big companies, and I suspect that you would say yours is one of them, where the pace of, of development is faster. But, you know, we find all the time that, you know, we're a small company and we work with small teams of, um, you know, pretty strong developers, I think it's fair to say. Um, and, you know, we come into an organization and there's just realities about the, you know, diffusion of information or the rate of communication or the number of people that need to be involved in decisions because they're affected by them that makes it feel slow. And, it, and, that, and there's a sense in which that's different from the feel of a small company. Mm. So I was just wondering from where you sit at sort of the intersection of entrepreneurship and um, a, a big organization, because Target is inarguably a large company, um, whether there's anything about that intersection that makes the type of work that you do especially, um, like, like makes people kind of come to you and say, oh, I have a really great idea. Oh my gosh, I'm so glad that there is an outlet within this organization for me to be able to express that work with people that understand that type of desire and, and then maybe even implement it. I, I, yeah, I think that in general, the dynamic you're describing is, uh, it's, uh, yeah, that holds for a lot of large organizations. I've, I've worked at quite a few as well. And so I'm speaking generally, not just about target, but, um, but certainly mixing that in because of, uh, you know, that's where I'm currently at. And small, I've had, I don't know, I think it's not, not a coincidence that I've, I've been on small, uh, small teams frequently, uh, throughout my career. And it's, it's because I think there's a trade-off between the, what's, what's inefficient for a small team and what's efficient for a small team versus what's, you know, the opposite for the large organization, because, the specialization, I think, comes out of optimization that has been put in place over time to tightly um, revise and adjust based on measures typically uh, typically geared toward operational efficiency. You know, not m- most corporations don't say, well, whatever is most aesthetically beautiful, that's what we're doing next quarter. <laughs> and their lands of, you know, they look like uh, like a Star Wars planet where there's giant flowers everywhere. Anyway, <laughs> not that I've seen at least. Uh, anyway, it's uh, that, that kind of specialization leads to, you know, it, hopefully something that's a machine that may be pretty complex, but it's very optimized for one concern often, you know, being financially efficient at doing a thing. Yet that trade-off uh, doesn't work so well when you want to do something new hence small teams or if it's and if it's not new to you maybe or your industry maybe it's or new to your the world maybe it's new to your industry maybe it's new to you either way it helps to uh, break outside the uh, optimized structure for whatever you normally do because this is outside that um and that circumstance a lot of I, I don't think it's uncommon anymore for folks to see the inefficiency of a small team yet look at other things like the flexibility and the resilience toward change and whatnot or the the resilience to keep producing amidst change and that that looks that looks appealing it also you know can be incredibly scary for some too uh i've seen both so I think that's really interesting, and, and uh, this is something that I've seen a bunch now that I'm think, sitting here with you talking uh, and thinking about it is the whole 
you know, small org, really, inside big org, is something I've, I've done a lot, both through consulting um, and also even times where I've been consulting to a small org embedded within a large org. I did a thing at, at, a, at one gigantic company where it was, they tried to, they tried to break out a smaller company, but they still had really like all of the negative oversight aspects of the big company. It was very weird. And I'm not suggesting at all that that's what, that's the situation you're in. But I, I guess what I'm asking is kind of the dual of that situation is, what are the aspects? Because I know you're happy with your job, and I and I, you know, I'm wondering what you think it is about the way you're doing small org type things to the extent that you are within a large organization that makes it makes it successful. Because I think a lot of people try to do that or want to do that and aren't able to. So I, I wonder if you have any perspective that would be valuable for people that are in that situation. I think it's worth looking at what criteria is being used to cause the, I'm assuming something disharmonious is happening where it's, it's uh, okay. Hey, we set up this new team this is going to be a tiger team. This is going to be whatever you, you know, pick a metaphor, but this team is going to be the new hope, the thing that whatever does something differently. And, you know, yet they're, they're, they're complaining or something isn't working out. And, Sometimes those complaints can come from uh, just really, I don't know, really natural and good things where uh, we want to live up to the standards of the parent organization. So we're just trying to do things the same way, but just tackle a different problem. So maybe we're using the same corporate image on our laptops and we're trying to use the same server environment and, and yet we're running into, you know, different constraints than if we went into like a, you know, platform as a service or something and, and, and enjoyed the flexibility you can have with something like Heroku. Right. And so I would ask in that circumstance, it's important to notice the frictions, try to try to notice if there are habits that are optional or if they are real true constraints related to the problem you're trying to solve. And then hopefully you'll find it, you know, as you examine all that, you'll find some that can be moved or, or thrown away or adjusted. So that, that's really interesting. I like that a lot. And it reminds me of something that I heard recently and I wish I could remember where I heard it. Uh, it was probably talking to somebody at strange loop. So if <laughs> that person is listening, you know, sorry that I'm not giving you proper due, but um, uh, it, it went something like, you know, human beings evolved in an environment where you knew probably 100, 150 people, right? There's all sorts mm -hmm. of studies that suggest that's an interesting threshold. Outs groups bigger than that tend to be less stable, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and as a result, like the set of people that you ever encountered and the set of situations you ever encountered was not generally going to be radically different from, from day to day or even month to month or even year to year. Um, and so, you know, we're not really good with like, uh, as a species with, with like whole synthesizing responses to whole new situations from, from nothing. Um, but what we're really good at as a species is adapting to variation within the, within the, um, environment. And I actually was, have been thinking about this. It really rings true. Uh, I can't say I've looked at any of the academic research on this, if there is any. Um, but, uh, you know, it rings true to me. I look at work and I'm like, well, you know, 
there are definitely a lot of times where a requirement on the project changes and I fail to see that that really should have should have precipitated the redesign in the system and instead I'm like well I'll just tweak this I know it's not optimal but whatever it gets me from point A to point B as quickly as I can and, and I think there's some sense in which this is the complaint against um, say TDD when it's practiced naively I'm not it's not a broad side against TDD as a whole but you know where you you drive a design by making a series of locally optimal decisions right by adapting your system in a small way to small um, changes but what that does is again practice naively is it means that you don't ever like you said revisit your assumptions right and 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 actually rethink things that that need rethinking um, I'm not sure I have a point here other than what you said reminded me of this what felt like a really insightful observation to me about um, adaptation versus like you know, really reinvention. So I don't know if you have any reaction to it, given it was just like babbling on my part. No, I I think uh, I think there is a lot of research that would back up what you were exploring there, and uh, and it was making sense. Where um, I think one of the best things to analyze as a constraint to inform your systems is your own cognition. Mm. <laughs> it's it's kind of a handy thing uh, to to find. Uh, um, well, a place I like to go hang out from time to time is the uh, list of cognitive biases and logical fallacies yes, yes. Uh, page on Wikipedia. Yes. It's awesome. And uh, in fact, and there's a lot of great resources on this, uh, including, you know, books that will take a couple of them and it'll be part of what they explore as a study. Like um, there's one I've been reading lately called I Know How She Does It, um, How Successful Women uh, Make the Most of Their Time or something like that. And... That one uh, characterizes this uh, a combination of, of um, cognitive biases, narrative bias, how we will tend to look back at a story and, and have it all make sense because it flowed as this, this sequence of causality and then we attach meaning to it, and which is, you know, turns out is a pretty powerful thing to memorize stuff, um, yet doesn't always play out as being accurate. If you combine that with loss aversion, you know, it's easy to have certain certain patterns as far as uh, explaining, uh, characterizing in potentially a negative light a set of circumstances that maybe isn't even negative if you step outside of that. And uh, anyway, that's a cool book. Can you sorry? Can you expand on that one a little bit? I mean, I'm yeah. I'm familiar with loss aversion, but I'm I'm just um, trying to tie those loss two things aversion. together. So, yeah. So we have a tendency. You know, okay, totally not a. a a, uh, yeah, yeah, no, I do this all the time on the show. Don't worry about it. Exactly. People are used to me I'm, making I'm up shits all the time. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh, but I find it handy to study this, uh, both you know, personally and professionally. So, loss aversion is how we have a tendency to hold on to the thing we're currently that's currently not killing us because, well, we're not dead and must be okay enough. And but the next thing might, and darn it, I don't know. And that overall leads to the well it, it's fairly well we, we have evolved to to have this as as a you know a fairly common uh, trait in, in humanity so we trust the things that we have or are using or our habits or patterns that that aren't really causing something negative but like worry about what might happen by switching away from them so this is the thing like where if you give somebody a 50 50 bet 
and on the one hand they're going to lose a dollar, but on the other hand they get to keep the 50 cents they already have. People should choose to maybe uh, I forget I, I might have said that wrong, right? But like right that where even though the probability is in favor of taking the risk, people tend not to do it because they over they overprice essentially the the potential loss versus a guaranteed non-loss if that if you will absolutely yeah, okay. and then, well generally i think well okay i say absolutely as if i'm totally an authority and no I, i'm i'm fumbling through this in a similar manner but i i yes we we weight things in a way that is uh irrational like what you're describing. So like it's real, we don't typically predict things statistically accurately. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, that's, those are, you know, adding, uh, adding evidence and, you know, peer review and, and all sorts of uh, scientific habits can help improve how you, you know, go about deciding things. Okay. Okay. So, so I got that part. So now, now you had tied those two things together, loss aversion and, um, Narrative bias. Narrative bias. And now, now that's the part where I want you to connect the dots for me. Oh, okay, sure. And so this is not my thesis, but it's uh, the thesis of the author. And her name isn't coming to me at the moment. Is it Sarah? It's, uh, no, Laura Vanderkam. And, uh, okay. We, if you combine, let's see. So narrative bias, kind of the story of, um, in. I'll have to use her example just to, stop um, floundering a bit. Her example is uh, I have a busy, stressful life and I don't spend you know, as much time with my kids as I want, nor do I spend as much time with, you know, doing these certain things that were how that I personally identified with as enriching and whatnot. This seems whatever unfair or a, a really difficult conundrum. And the, the story can kind of lock in your perspective and the loss aversion can help you or, you know, prevent you from trying to change or, or look at different mm. possible stories. That's the gist of it. Oh, uh, got it. Oh, that makes that total sense. sense. And, and, and describes large swaths of my life as a parent. And I think most <laughs> parents, um, all right, cool. Thank you. That helps a lot. Um, and I forget where we had started out with that. Oh, that's a, that's a wonderful place to wind up. Um, it's thinking about change and right. you were, you were talking about how, uh, there's some kinds of change that, that seem, uh, palatable, palatable enough, probably because the risk isn't that high, mm. but big change, sudden change is a lot harder. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, so that is super cool. And these are the types of conversations that you and I have all the time, um, that I wanted to get to, but there's so many things I want to talk to you about that. I'm afraid I'm going to shift gears on you a bit. Um, one thing is I, I, I would hate to drop the phrase interactive storyteller in your in your introduction and then not give you a chance to comment on that because I think, um, although I, I believe it to be a phrase that has maybe gotten a little bit more airtime over the last couple of years, I think it's a really interesting uh, uh, take on um, software in particular uh, that you've taken and that others have taken and I'd love to hear you um, expand on it a little bit for our audience. Totally cool. Yeah. It's in a way it's like a, it's a helpful summary of a lot of things that I find, uh, as passions and interests. And I, I really enjoy the pursuit of user experience 
and to design systemically. And one of and stories are a are an approach to to systemic design because you're thinking of change over time. And what does that change mean over time? And what's it like to be partaking in that flow? So put yourself in in someone else's shoes and find out what that's like. And potentially, potentially, um, that may be a, a variety of people's shoes, different characters, different personas, if you will. And the the interactive aspect is that uh, traditional storytelling may have some branching. So if you're, if you're doing it as a performance and, you know, doing some role playing or improv or something, it's possible to have a branching story, but typical stories in, in, in our, you know, are commonly experienced as linear. And so when you think of, there's a potential feedback loop between an interactive actor and, and a story, and you are a, sort of facilitator, a host, and a uh, author providing that. Uh, I like that mindset, and I, I try to, um, I think that's, that's how I ended up uh, backing into that, that title and, and embracing it. And so, right. And, and you embrace it in a number of ways. I think um, you've taken it to your work, uh, your work work, um, you know, your day job, if you will. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, kind of one of the ways that you and I got to be really good friends is that, um, you know, I think it's fair to say that you were a huge fan of um, computer games um, and broadly games of all types, but I think mm-hmm. especially computer games uh, going way back. Um, and you and I actually, I don't know if we want to talk about this tonight, but you know, oh, you sure. and I started out a, a, a working on a little company where we, um, where we, you know, back in the, well, I guess, mid-90s, um, uh, took a crack at making a game. And you have since actually mm-hmm. made um, a few games. Um, and so that's clearly a form of interactive storytelling. So I'd, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about your latest effort, because I know you just uh, not too long ago uh, published your latest creation, and I would hate to let the opportunity to let you tell people how to go by. So maybe we could start there and kind of dig in a little bit more on this interactive storytelling thing via that route. Oh, sure. Um, well, my, my, my latest game began as a, it, it's a side project, right? As you mentioned, it's not my day job. So... It's, um, it's so funny how even after getting games out into the world, even after, you know, doing various creative pursuits, how, um, I don't know, I just, I got caught in this interesting, um, set of habits where thankfully I eventually, uh, released it, but it started out as, uh, just a conversation with my wife where, Hey, wouldn't it be neat to, you know, make a game together? It's been a while since we've worked on a project together. And she had uh, kind of a rough concept that after a few conversations, a couple of, you know, back of the napkin things and maybe a, a layout in, uh, in Keynote, we had a concept. And fast forward two years, <laughs> there was quite a span between that conversation or th- those initial designs and, and when it got released. But, uh, but yeah, recently uh, the, the, the game that, that uh, we designed together uh, my wife, Kate Shield Stenzinger, and I, it's called uh, This Panda Needs You. And it's, it's all about making, playing with shapes and building stuff. And particularly toward a younger audience who get, can uh, get some sort of math benefits and whatnot as well by looking, doing pattern recognition and shape recognition. And what happens is, is 
the gist of it is uh, there's a little panda hanging out in a nice bamboo forest, encounters different formations of shapes. This little cloud shows up, knocks them down. And it's your job to help the panda put this put the shapes back the way they were. And that's that is the flow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's very cool. I know you have two little kids and uh you know, um I think it's a it's you know, there really can't be too many like solid games for kids. I know there's a lot of them now, but some of them are pretty awful. So, uh, but yeah, actually, let's let's just take a step aside for a second because um, we have a pretty nerdy audience. I really I, mm-hmm. I dig that about our audience. Um, can you talk a bit about the tech because it's actually pretty different from the tech we usually talk about? Oh yeah, yeah. So this game was built on a JavaScript stack, and it was using a project called uh, Phaser JS as the as the game engine. Uh, game engines have the job of providing sort of this this sort of uh, heartbeat and interactive uh, feedback loop, where a lot of a uh, lot of apps when you when you build them it's sort of like a, an event and response model, whereas a game is is providing stimulus too. So it's not just waiting for you to do something; it's actually doing stuff to you probably. Um, and so it's really it's a it's a nice foundation to start from scratch or to to, I'm sorry, it's a nice foundation to start from a game engine <laughs> if it, you know, f- suits your interests and whatnot because you end up saving a lot of uh, a lot of time to, you know, not have to address the basics of, of input and, and hand- handling that. Uh, it's more like, how do I want to handle this and what flow do I want to provide? And, and then you, you know, build screens and whatnot. Phaser JS is awesome. It, it's uh, it's 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 uh, I think phaser.js, and um, I think it's built by Richard Davies, and, and it's it's an it's amazing. If you're into JavaScript and even have the uh, smallest inkling to uh, try making games, I I highly recommend it. So I, I know you have a fairly deliberate approach to software, which, you know, I think um, a lot of audience would, would resonate with. Um, uh, so you've looked at a lot of things, and, and I imagine that at least that you looked at a lot of things in the course of the, the run-up to the creating this game, maybe not mm-hmm. doing a lot of examination of, of a lot of engines right before you're doing this, because I suspect you'd already tried, in fact, I know you tried out a bunch of them before. And I, what my question I'm driving at really is... Um, to what to what extent do you think that that the the tooling and I use that term very broadly matters? Like, so you obviously like Phaser JS, very cool, right? It worked yeah. really well for you on this. You know, if you had if you had been if you had made a different choice or been constrained to make a different choice by some criteria, like how much of that do you think matters? I mean, because you talked a bit about you know you and your wife had a concept, and then of course there's this. You know, it's the whole step two, dot, 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 and then step three, <laughs> profit. And so I guess, I guess I'm asking you to comment very broadly on, like, how much of that bit in the middle does it matter, the, the choices you make around, around tooling, in your opinion? Oh, boy. It, <laughs> it matters. I can argue both sides with full force. Yeah. <laughs> because what matters the most is getting something into people's hands. And that's my, you know, just sort of fundamental bias toward 
shipping a thing to hold myself accountable to what I assumed I was making, getting the reactions and adjusting it if I need it. And it doesn't matter how optimized my game engine is if I'm not doing that. And at the same time, my quality of life while doing that could vary quite a bit. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And uh, like, let's see, ages ago, like the JavaScript stack wasn't ready really for mobile games back in like uh, early 2010. It was right on the cusp of being ready. And I had prototyped a video game that I ended up finishing, but I had to, um, I had to migrate it, uh, invested lots of time in, into a prototype. That game became Guitar Fretter. Um, and I ended up uh, picking a totally different stack. That stack at the time was great, but then just it's, it, that's built on Lua and uh, it's roughly a kind of um, sort of API and object model that feels a lot like Flash, yet through a Lua, Lua lens. Um, Lua is a scripting language, you know, a lot like, you know, a dynamically typed language, you know, much like any other. But um, there's, like, I switched stacks, even though I'd, I, I, I knew I could, fin- I could do, I could create this Panda in, in the, the whole uh, Corona S- SDK and, and, you know, using Lua and all these other things that I, uh, tools I built up around that. But... Honestly, working in my day job, I was feeling a really great quality of life working in the JavaScript ecosystem, which caused me to sort of do a series of explorations and and poking at, uh, well, hey, how has the JavaScript stack come along in the in the in the realm of uh, game development and, and mobile mobile packaging and and will it work? Can it perform and all that? And it looked very promising. So it was just a matter of holding myself to a brief period of, of shopping for the different, you know, to pick an engine and, and move on. And uh, thankfully it turned out. Um, but as far as other elements in the stack, since you mentioned uh, being, being techy about it, I'm using uh, a build system that's primarily, um, um, it's using Gulp, which is built on Node.js. And so it's kind of funny, I'm using like a, essentially a, a, a desktop or server-side tech as part of building a client-side um, packaged app. Well, but, hey, this audience is no stranger to that sort of stuff, right? We have the, you know, we have both sides and then the two meet all the time in Clojure and Clojure Script. Cool. Anyway, sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah you're saying, so there's, there's this build system called Gulp. Yeah, and uh, so, right, I'm using Gulp as a way to... Um, to package up all the code and, and, and assets in a way that that's um, what turns out is in the structure of a Cordova app, which then can be compiled um, in into uh, an Android project and a, an iOS project via uh, Cocoon JS. <laughs> so sorry, C- Cordova is the thing formerly known as PhoneGap. Is that right? Correct. Okay, great. Okay. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, the the stack of things as an artist formerly known as. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. it it's um uh, yeah. So okay, then I do some cloud compiling with uh, uh, Cocoon JS, and it spits out those projects. I can test them locally, test them on devices, and then you know do your normal app store uh, dance. 
Cool. Do you do any any do you use any particular? Um, I'm not a front end guy, as you're well aware. Uh, do you use any particular technique to get good coverage across devices? Um, or are you relying on uh, Cordova to pull that off for you? Like, do you use um, one of the various services that'll run? You know, they have like video cameras hooked up and pointed at like phones in a rack, that type of thing. Or, or how do you how do you how do you able to, to address that? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? I yeah, yeah. I I just tested it on my own devices. Sure. Yeah. Right now. Yeah. Yep. It's, like you said, uh, it's a side project, and you've got uh, Cordova going for you, which covers mm-hmm. up a lot of those differences. So that seems totally reasonable. Well, exactly. Approach. And JavaScript, and the V8 engine, and you know, right. a lot of a lot of things that do. You know, they don't make it necessarily impervious to problems or whatever, sure. but uh, but good enough. And in fact, I, I did have some bugs where I still haven't released the uh, the the multi form factor versions version of the, of uh, this mm-hmm. panda. Mm-hmm. So it really is currently just an iPad game. Mm-hmm. Um, so you and I have a tendency to talk for like two and a half hours when we when we, we do like a monthly call with uh, with you, me, and a, and a other group of friends who occasionally show up as well. And we have a tendency to talk for like two and a half hours and then go, God, I got to go to bed, you know. Um, so I want to, all of which is a long-winded way of, of saying, ironically, um, that I want to loop back to a couple of the things I want to talk about before we go, because we could easily go down this rabbit hole um, fascinatingly for quite a while. And especially I want to come back t- and, and ask you some more questions about interactive storytelling. I just find that concept so cool. So you mentioned this game, This Panda Needs You. I have the name mm-hmm. right, yeah? Uh, and, um, you know, it's about, like, shapes. And I, I can sort of sense a story there, but, like... What I feel like there's more of a that there was probably a lot of really intentional thinking around story in even as simple perhaps I will admit I haven't played this game yet although I ought to and, and want to I, I I imagine there's a lot of thought that went into the story aspect of it maybe even as much as went into some of the technical aspects is that is that true and if so like how do you how do you go about making a story out of something like, you know, put, you know, shapes got busted or whatever the, whatever the sad, the horrible (laughs) summary of the, the inaccurate summary of your game is. So in, in a story, it's, uh, there's a cute character that you'll, you will probably because of your, um, you know, if it, if it was designed well enough to trigger your, um, feelings of empathy and caretaking because it is a cute character. Um, or you are small enough where you're like, this is cute. I'm cute because you know, Hey, we're small. <laughs> and, uh, you're, you're seeing that through that empathy that, uh, this, this panda is having a lot of fun going along. And you know what? That's that panda likes shapes. I like shapes too. We are on the same page and then bam, darn it. Something happens, but you know what? It's actually kind of awesome. That cloud is a little frustrating and a little bit awesome because I kind of wish I could um, throw shapes all over. In fact, I can watch me go. You can throw shapes all over. If I want to throw different shapes all over, I actually need to put this back together. <laughs> okay, cool. So really it's about experiencing that, that sort of, that, that series of thoughts. and An emotional arc. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it, so it's not, not particularly complicated. 
Well, but it's universal I too, I think. I mean, you, and, and so this kind of gets around to where I was hope. I, I figured you'd say something like that, and and so now we've led. I've led you right into my trap, Rob. So let's say I'm writing <laughs> no. an accounting package, right? Like that's my day job, and mm-hmm. and I and I hear Rob Sensinger talk on the Cognicast about interactive storytelling, and I'm like, and I'm like, man, I want to I want to put that in my accounting package, right? And and. I will tell you right now, I don't personally see how to do that, but I, I, if I was going to ask anybody, there's two people I would definitely go to first to ask you that question. One is definitely you. Like, how do I, how do I put empathy in my accounting package, Rob? How do I, you know, can I make the pan, can I put the panda in my accounting software? Uh, and the <laughs> other person is Michael Parento, who's, who's been on the show before. Um, so, I, you know, he's not here, and that's cool, because I want to hear your, your side of it, too. So how do I put some panda love in my in my accounting software? I think the, the approach I tend to tend to take, I don't know if it, if fits everyone's interests, but it, but it really is about empathy gathering and it's about essentially going native where you need to become, you need to be, uh, you need to break some spreadsheets. You need to make spreadsheets. You need to feel the, the guts of a spreadsheet on your hands, whatever those accountants are doing, <laughs> you get into their native land and you wow. experience their life. I just, I just had a picture of like, you know, a bunch of people in like hacked off business suits with ties around their mm-hmm. heads on a tropical Island, <laughs> like gutting a, a spreadsheet fish. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Totally. That's wonderfully evocative. And I interrupted you, which is terribly rude. Please continue. No worries. It's uh this is, yeah, this is a conversation. So the, this, uh, Metaphor is your mileage may vary. Whatever it takes for you to essentially give a giant crap about what they give a crap about, hmm. and that probably means just finding common ground and, and hanging out and, and looking for a common challenge. Which, if you hang out with anyone anywhere in any business situation for long enough and have uh, a, an inquisitive mind, where you're thinking. Uh, how does that work? Why are you doing that? Is that thing that I'm seeing in the way or is that helping? Okay. Then you start to be able to identify the, you know, the, the good spreadsheets from the bad spreadsheets or whatever. I don't even know if that exists, but. You know. I'm sure it does actually. I'll tell you a story sometime about spreadsheets, but please continue. <laughs> and you'll eventually start to have, uh, you'll, you'll, their jargon will become your jargon. Their you'll share enough perspective where you'll be able to say, Hey, I wonder if this would help. And then you can start to work with them to grow that this and somewhere it exists because they share the same cognitive biases and logical fallacies that you do and spend time with them. And with the assumption that there's, there's gotta be um, a way to, Find the better thing, just like a native practitioner would find the better thing, not just as an outsider. Like I could look back and assume, well, you know, I hate spreadsheets. All you people are weird. You like spreadsheets. I'm going to find a solution that gets rid of this. That's not your choice. You need to find what they would be mm, driven to discover, even if they don't know what that is yet. Hmm. That sounds really hard. <laughs> and I think it is, and that's okay. I mean, uh, we've we've said many times um, that 
you know, hard problems are interesting problems and they're, they're worth solving. Um, but, but I guess, um, to make it more concrete, do you have any, any particular techniques that you use to, to help you do that? Or do you, you draw, just draw on your experience or just try to keep that in the forefront of your mind or, or, you know, metacognition or what, like any, any tips for somebody who listens to this and says, that sounds awesome. I'd love to do more of that. What, what can I do to get better at that? Uh, I would recommend sort of uh, design thinking infused hackathons where you work together on a thing where it's not you working separately from them and they working separately from you. And those can be essentially just half a day or a full day. And you may not actually be hacking on a particular technology or maybe you should. It depends. Um, planning, planning a good uh, uh, creative you know, hackathon experience is, is, a, is a big part of those kinds of events turning out. Uh, uh, having an outcome that, that people find useful or not. And, or you could be planning to just have a pitch where now you have a concrete or it may not be the, the exact solution, but you, you've, you've got a concrete definition of the solution. Mm -hmm. And so I've, I've done a, a few kinds of those hackathon type days and facilitated them. And those, those lead to, um, great kinds of empathy. Like we described, it sounds really hard to get, but it's it's actually incredibly easy when you have uh, sort of a this contained uh, creative challenge. Is the so it sounds well, well? Let me first ask the question rather than making the assumption. Is it just spending time together, focused on a task? I mean, is that really what you're saying? Is just you know spend get in a room, don't do anything else, focus on the problem. Am, am I correctly summarizing that? That's one. Yes. I would say in an, in an ideal world. However, I, I think uh, one of the reasons why I love games is that they provide this sort of, um, this, this mindset that people are willing to buy into and try new things that uh, that's, that's where like a good sort of, design event, hackathon, whatever you want to call it, it, it gets people out of whatever their, mm. their hardened roles and assumptions about what their purpose is for that. You know, so get in a room and, 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 and try hard, that can work, but it depends on, on the group of people. But gotcha. I've seen a lot more success when there's, they sort of step outside that day-to-day -day just for a little bit and all of a sudden build tons of common... Um, communication and context and a shared purpose um, within this nice, constrained, uh, playful environment. Well, that, I mean, that really answers the question I was going to ask, which was uh, around, isn't it, it, maybe it's an observation, not a question, but essentially, given that we oftentimes <laughs> take one hammer and actually, what is it? Engineering is the art of finding the right wrench to pound in the right screw, Right. Like we, we take the wrench and we just use it to pound in any screw we can find. Um, and what I'm getting at is meetings, right? Like we have this, like we, like we almost, we say, okay, the way to solve any problem is to get a bunch of people together in a room for a time insufficient. And, and what you're saying is in a setting that's insufficient to actually 
cause that sort of creativity or really empathy to arise. Um, you know, because the meetings are never more than an hour, and there there's always, well, not always is a strong word, but you know, there's often, oh, I've got to go. I'm already five minutes late to my next meeting. Um, not that yeah, that well-run meetings aren't useful, but maybe not useful for solving the type of problem that you're talking about. Absolutely, it's it has uh, it it is a tool, but uh, yeah, sometimes it's it's worth looking at. What are, uh, where do we want to go with this, with this, uh, collaborative relationship and will a meeting help really help us get there? Has it, has it done that in, in the past and, and examining that is, is, uh, is, is a worthwhile thing and take a look around. I bet you will find different strategies besides, uh, and by, and, and even just saying the phrase, you know, like a, a design thinking workshop or a hackathon, like there's so many, there are many interpretations of that and there are many interpretations of a meeting. Either way, um, having uh, captured the constraints and your, your in, intent hopefully will let you uh, shape something where whatever you end up picking, it'll be a, a fitting tool. Because, yeah, I mean, who needs another uh, another status meeting that, for the most part, someone could have read uh, a blurb in Slack or pick your chat tool? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I would like to take a hard left turn, and not because this is an interesting um, – it absolutely is. Uh, and I, I'll, I'll tell everybody right now, this is exactly the sort of conversations that Rob and I have, although, like, it's never been the same thing twice, so – Clearly, I will say the thing that I so often say on the show, because it is so often true, because we are so fortunate in our choice of guests, we will have to have you back on, because there's no way we can explore all the many interesting things that um, that you have to say about these topics and the time we have available to us. But before we go, I want to talk about uh, one, maybe two more things if we have time. So you and I both set uh, goals on our 40th birthday. Um, they were different goals. Uh, I wanted to run a mile in um, a certain time. Uh, yours, however, when I heard yours, I was like, okay, that's amazing. I don't even know how I would go about doing mm-hmm. that. Um, and so um, yeah. I'll, I'll just let you say it. What, what was your goal on your 40th birthday, Rob? <sighs> it's uh, <clears throat> it's not one I've talked about publicly yet, but why not? We, I, coming uh, out you. Okay. <clears throat> I decided after doing some research and seeing if this would be safe or not, uh, I decided to do uh, essentially the number of years that I was about to be of age times 100 push-ups so, and sit-ups. So that's 4,000 push-ups for those of you that are as slow at math as I am and sit-ups in, in one. I mean, I mean, when I tell people this, their first reaction is, did you, did you do anything else on your birthday? Like, you know, or was it that week? Or I mean, is that so? So I know that you achieved this. I mean, obviously, it's something you did, and um, and it's amazing. I mean, I've I've been going back to push ups a little bit myself, and I'm uh, to say nowhere near four thousand is doesn't capture it. That would imply that I'm like in the hundreds, which believe me is not true. So uh, I, I'd love to hear more about how, how this even became a thing that you were contemplating, and then how it became a thing that you actually did, including what the experience on that day was like. Well, <clears throat> <laughs> at first it's, 
there are folks who do YouTube videos, turns out on pretty much anything. And I had, had encountered that some folks would be talking about that amount of, of, um, of pushups. And I thought, well, okay, that's cause I, I had already actually done about, um, I don't know, somewhere in the 2000 range of sit-ups. And I thought, okay, I, uh, I'm not as worried about that one. Also, this is a, it's a, it is a modified one. Now mm-hmm. it's, uh, I did, I could do, well, I am nowhere near at this level of training at the moment and which totally is a, 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 a you, know, you can stop disclaiming. You can be totally proud of this. You don't have to be like, oh, whatever. Just that's cool, man. Just tell the story. All right. It's, it's all enough. good. All right, because um, I'm happy. You know, I'm you should actually. be. You absolutely should be proud of this. So go ahead. All right, fair enough. All right. So after really deciding that it's probably not the dumbest thing and the worst thing that could happen, you know, maybe there will be a doctor visit or two or some therapy. Who knows, right? <laughs> um, it's probably survivable. Not that bad. Um, and so, so then I started, you know, just training and in the, in the training, I'd, I'd gotten to, you know, a little bit over a thousand and I decided that, well, runners seem to do like these bursty things or whatever. Mm -hmm. And this was nowhere near scientific, but it was like, I feel like if I heal up for a few more, few, a few days and I come back at it, I could probably push the rest of the way. And, uh. And I think I ended up doing that to like 2000. Then I healed up again. I ended up, you know, doing, doing it the rest of the way after healing up for another week for that first time. And, um, but it was this sort of, it was exploring like where, where is this limit and how, how bad does it hurt or not? Mm -hmm. And the more I explored the limit, the more I created capacity to continue to explore that limit, which to me felt a lot like creative projects and hmm. learning new stuff. And it didn't feel conceptually different at all from making a video game or webcomic. And uh, so what happened on that, that the, the first time I just, uh, it was a weird day. I remember, you know, my wife likes to watch football. So that was on in the background and I just started early and was able to sort of, I, I had to keep a log cause it's easy to lose track. And, you know, I would log throughout the day. I made really good progress early on, but then started to slow down, have a lot of diminishing returns and my muscles weren't coming back and healing quick enough. So anyway, it's, it's, uh, after, um, I think the first time it took me 12 hours or so. And there's breaks in there. I'm assuming. You're yeah. Not, okay. There's breaks. Okay. Yeah. So it would typically be in, um, in burst of, of 200 of each. And then the bursts were 100 of each. And then they were, you know, 50 or whatever I could manage. And then just kept at it, um, for enough hours where I I was able to complete that within 24 hours. Um, and, and then that your birthday was, I I didn't quite follow the the chronology. Was that the first time that you had done 4,000 was that day? No, this was, uh, my, my intent was like, it was almost like paying the toll for that trip, particular trip around the sun. Right? <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm, <laughs> this is my currency. And there, so I actually did it a few days before my birthday. Okay. And that, that was the approach I, I tried to take. So let's say things went 
you know, didn't work out, I still had time to sure. do one more attempt. Gotcha. 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 And so, and when you had done that, when you had achieved it, did you have a particular feeling of accomplishment at the end of it when you did, you know, 3,999, you know, like, was it the next one? Was it a big deal for you personally? It's, um, it's a very peaceful feeling. <laughs> it's, it's not something that I, I ran around hooting or anything. <laughs> uh, it just was, wow. Okay. This is, I'm, I'm glad this worked out. I, I'm, and I don't think I need to go to the hospital. So <laughs> yeah, right. This is all right. Well, yeah, you know, and I mean, like I'm laughing a little bit, but you know, I, I've run a couple marathons and I think there's plenty of people out there that would look at running. Personally, I think for me at least, you know, and I recognize that people have different physical limitations or advantages, but for me at least 4,000 pushups would be a bigger deal than, than running 26.2 miles. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, um, but I think and some... I'm in the opposite. Moment. Well, okay, right. So that's the point is that it's all relative, but the point yeah. is, is that I, my initial reaction is that's nuts. But then again, I suspect lots of people would say the same thing about, you know, marathons. So, uh, so it's cool. No, it's <laughs> very cool. Is absolutely. Anyway, so that's that's just a neat story, and I really thought that uh, it would be fun to get you to share that, and it, and it really was. And I appreciate that you um, that you did so, even though, like you said, you haven't done that before. But we I hope it was interesting. I think it was. I really think it was. I think I mean, sort of in the oh my god, I can't believe you did that, but um, cool stuff. And I and I think we could spend a whole show talking about your approach to work and your personal discipline. Um, that I think plays into that story a lot and that maybe you don't even realize, um, but at, at least that you didn't talk about. Um, but anyway, we are kind of coming up on the time where we should probably start to wind down. Um, I do want to very briefly uh, give you a chance to talk about something that I'm sure we could do a whole other show on, um, which is uh, you do a couple podcasts as well, which are I've – I've listened to one of them. The other one I haven't, but knowing you, I'm sure I would really enjoy it. But I do want to give you a chance to talk about those because I think – Anybody that's listened to this last hour has gotten to see a little bit of what I've known for the last 25 years, which is here's a guy with a lot of cool things to say and um, give you a chance to say, here's what the shows are about so that they can decide to go and, and check those out for themselves. Uh, yeah, super kind on many levels. Thanks. I, yeah, I do, I do a couple of podcasts. One of them is, is, a, is a personal journal that I, that I started almost six years ago. That's called the Polytechnicast. And it's... It's just uh, to help me do some reflection on what am I making, what are some things around the stuff that I make that are influencing me, and, and hopefully exploring that. And and the process of that exploration is is very helpful solo, but yet even more so in this other podcast that I do called the Lean Into Art Cast, and and that is very similar because it endorses the, the habit of reflection quite a bit, but then it applies it to a variety of sort of creative challenging topics to try to examine from a, from a theoretical perspective and something practical as well. And that I do with my uh, co-host Jersey Drost of comicsaregreat.com. And we'll have guests on and, and, or just the two of us and explore a lot of topics. Been doing that. I've, over four years now, lots of uh, lots of stuff out there at leanintart.com. We in Jersey and I do a, a second podcast that is less structured and, and more uh, extemporaneous called Extra Lean 
<laughs> which, uh, which is a, just a totally different kind of challenge. Instead of trying to take a, a, a structured examination, seeing just sort of what comes up in the moment and, uh, and exploring as, as, we, as we have, uh, as we do, because it's a habit. <laughs> Yeah, th- those do to those do seem to be kind of two of the dimensions. Of, you know, you have podcasts that are more produced, you know, that have a a, a stronger idea of what the show is going to be before it's recorded, in a sense. And then you have shows, and I think this show falls firmly into this category, where it's more, as you said, extemporaneous. Good word. Um, you know, extemporaneous, conversational, however you want to describe it. I've I've kicked around the idea of doing a a more produced or structured show someday, but uh, this one's this one's definitely the one I'm going to spend my time on my podcast time on. So anyway, so that's that's very cool. People should definitely check that out. But uh, yeah, yeah. So so obviously, um, I think it's easy to tell that I would be happy to talk to you for much more time. But uh, I think it's probably about time to wind down. Um, the only thing I want to make sure that we leave time for is if there's anything else that you're working on or that you want to mention and, and you think uh, it's important that we mention today. I want to make sure we leave time to do that. I think it's, there's always time for um, anything else that uh, the, the, the guest would like to bring up. Uh, we have no hard time limit, so um, don't want to squeeze you on that. I, we, we will have you back, though, so if there's stuff that you want to spend um, whatever time on, uh, we, we can do that some other time. But if there's anything this time around, please do feel free to mention it. I I really appreciate you having me on. It's a lot. It's always fun to talk. I've uh, I have benefited immensely over the years from your friendship and the intellectual explorations we've done together, Craig. So thank you. Well, it has been mutually beneficial, but we're not quite done with you yet. I appreciate that. But I I do have one more question to answer. Another one that I warned you about a mere hour ago, um, which was at the end of the show. We do ask the guest to share with us a piece of advice. Um, and that can be advice for anyone or from anyone or really any piece of advice at all, stuff you make up on the spot for that matter. Just your interpretation on advice. Oftentimes we have people give advice to the audience, but it's not restricted to that. So uh, hopefully you had a chance in the bare few minutes I uh, gave you of warning before the show started uh, to think of something you'd like to share with our audience. I would say I've got two pieces. So there's almost like a primary and a backup. The... The primary is, uh, I, I read a book a while back called 59 Seconds, that it's essentially a, an inventory of psychological studies that kind of has the, like a self-help angle on it, where it's sort of, well, based on this uh, psychological study, this is an interesting personality type or cognitive bias to, um, to, to explore, and here's a better way to navigate choices related to that. So, uh, and then even there's even like this uh, super concentrated summary of of habits to uh, extract from all that in the end. And uh, I'll add add to that. But um, in 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 a nutshell, the conceit of the book is someone walks up to you, and you're an expert who happens to know all of these uh, different studies and and different insights from them. How can you summarize each of them in 59 seconds? That's the, hence the title. But uh, here are 10 things that come out of that book is uh, as, as 10 things that lead to choices related to a more happy existence. Number one, gratitude. Number two, give help. 
Number three, put a mirror in the kitchen. Haven't done that. Number four, plants in the office. Number five, touch people on the upper arm. Number six, write about your relationship. Number seven, deal with liars via asking them to email you. Number eight, praise a child's effort over creativity and inherent ability. Number nine, visualize doing, not achieving. Number 10, consider your legacy. Number 11 is not based on all these studies and whatnot. This is my thing that is the sort of the, the bonus in there is um, I, kind, I, I, I love audiobooks and whatnot, and I use that as a habit um, to be uh, super helpful for, you know, obviously commutes and whatnot. But um, I've found myself, though, using that audiobook time to try to go a step outside where I'm feeling comfortable. Like I mentioned the book, I Know How She Does It. Uh, I, I'm actually, um, um, I'm a dude, right? And this book is written to a female audience and whatnot, but yet I'm like, well, there's inherently a lot of interesting advice in, in whatnot in here. So I checked that out. Another book that put me out of, outside of my comfort zone is uh, The Art of Asking, and that was by Amanda Palmer. And finally, the um, uh, book by Brene Brown called um, The uh, oh, Daring Greatly. All of these are, are just things that are just a little outside my comfort zone kind of thing. And I, that's what I recommend is like try to find a high quality information source so it's not like just going to be like, oh, this is disappointing and trash and, and I didn't learn anything, but yet um, not one that you would normally tune into. And I bet that would lead to some kind of interesting experience. Very, very cool, Rob. I, you know, I, I, you're the kind of guy that I say, hey, uh, can we get one piece of advice? And you're like, here's 11. That's just the sort of guy you are. I think it's fantastic. And they were very good. I mean, I really appreciate that. Um, I'm not. I'm not being facetious at all. That was that was very neat. Uh, so so thanks so much for taking the time today to this evening to come on. I know you've got a super busy life. You've got you know two small children and these side projects and 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 of course a day job and all the other things that you do. Um, and so it was really great to um, to talk to you first of all, but also to have you take the time to record with us. I think uh, I think it's it's been really fun, and I think our audience will really enjoy it. So thanks so much for for coming on the show. It's an honor, Craig. Thank you, and I would happily come back anytime. Oh, we will definitely have you back. Um, you know, uh, but we might have to wait till you're 50 to see if you can do 5,000 when you're 50. I'm totally kidding. Yeah, totally kind of the commitment, isn't totally, it? Totally. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. I kind of like I said I set a running goal, and I'm wondering now. Anyway, but no, we would love to have you back. We will not wait until you are 50 uh, by any stretch of the imagination. It'll have to be way before that. Um, I'm looking forward to talking to you. Um, the next time, whether it's recorded or no, hope, uh, you know, but hopefully very soon. So anyway, just want to thank you again so much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute delight. And uh, we will also thank our audience, as always, for listening. This has been the CogniCast. You have been listening to The Cognicast. The Cognicast is a production of Cognitech, Inc., whom you can find on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at Cognitech. 
You can subscribe to the Cognicast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art and show notes at our home on the web, cognitech.com podcast. You can contact us by tweeting at Cognicast or by emailing us at podcast at cognitech.com. Our guest today was Rob Stenzinger on Twitter at Rob Stenzinger, R-O-B-S-T-E-N-Z-I-N-G-E-R. Episode cover art is by Michael Parento. Audio production by Russ Olson. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Thanks for listening. Thank <laughs> you.